0: Americans United is Fighting Back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. In the brand new book, Dear Bi Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag Bisexual Men Speak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are black, mask, and bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi plus visibility and a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma, navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear Buy Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, we are joined by not once, twice, but three-time returning guest Meredith Broussard, who we love so freaking much. And we're going to be trying something a little new this week, a two-part release. In part one, we'll be breaking down the basics. That was just, I don't know what that was, y'all, but I don't know if you heard that bang of the boom, but I'm recording in my apartment in New York City, honey and it is bangy and boomy sometimes. So in part one, we will be breaking down the basics on AI. And tomorrow, yes, you heard that right, tomorrow, we will be back for a more in-depth discussion of algorithmic bias and what the future holds for artificial intelligence. I had the best time speaking with Meredith, and I'm excited for you to learn as much from her as I did. Without further ado, let's get into it. Here's part one of our conversation where we're asking, how smart is artificial intelligence? Hello, 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 my curious cuties, and welcome back to getting curious, the podcast where we come to learn, grow, and get inspired. I'm your host, Jonathan Van Ness, and today's episode is going to be all about tech and algorithms. Oh my. But before we dive into that, let's take a moment to bask in the glory that is today. We made it. We're here. We're breathing and we're ready to learn something new. So let's get curious together, shall we? Now, I don't know about you, but technology and algorithms have always been a little bit intimidating to me. They seem like these mysterious things that only the tech wizards fully understand. But that's exactly why I'm so excited to have our guest today, Meredith Broussard, join us. Meredith is a computer scientist and journalist who's here to help us demystify the world of tech and algorithms. She's written a new book called More Than a Glitch, and it's all about how these algorithms can sometimes perpetuate bias and inequality. We're gonna be talking about everything from facial recognition technology to self-driving cars and learning how we can make sure that these technologies are serving all of us, not just a select few. So get ready to have your mind blown because we're about to get curious with the brilliant Meredith Broussard. Full disclosure, uh, first of all, welcome. And also everyone, if you are scratching your fucking head right now, wondering why I am talking like that, you should know the following. That introduction was written by ChatGPT. Our prompt was, script Jonathan's opening monologue for an episode of Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. Episode will feature an interview with Meredith Broussard about her new book, More Than a Glitch. Honey, wasn't that fucking interesting that it thinks that I talk like that?
1: I had my mind blown, just as the monologue suggested.
0: So just so you all know, so obviously, like, you must remember Meredith unless you've been under Getting Curious Rock. She's one of our favorite guests. She also is joining a very elite club of, like, three-time returning people. If y'all have not listened to our first two episodes, maybe listen to the rest of this one and then go back and listen because I don't want us to get off track. I don't know if we've ever had anyone three times. It, It might be a first. We would have had you anyway, but I will say, sidebar, that your yearly homemade chocolates, not to put pressure on anything, I would pay you a gajillion dollars to come on the podcast every day. Just if I knew I was going to get those, you all don't understand the elite craft quality of Meredith Broussard's chocolates. And before we get into chat GPT and everything, how the fuck do you make those chocolates? Like, how do you get inspired to make those? Like, those, those chocolates are next level.
1: Well, Jonathan, I'm just imagining like me being Ted Lasso, like with the little box of shortbread cookies, like showing up at the podcast every week. But so yeah, in addition to writing books and being an NYU professor, uh, I also have this thing where I make chocolate truffles with my girlfriends and we do it like every couple of months in truffle season, which is the winter time because it's cold. I think it's been going on for about 40 years. I've been doing it for almost 30 years. Um, We just get together and we make chocolates and we send them to our favorite
0: people. I've never been more grateful to be on a list in my fucking life. They are so incredible. I'm sorry that we're starting off this like algorithmic bias episode with your literal scholarship, NYU ass work, scholar self. Okay. I can focus now.
1: Well, we bring our whole self to every interaction, right? (sighs) Like I am an algorithmic bias scholar. I am a writer And I am also somebody who cares a lot about baking.
0: But what did you think about how like that ChatGPT did in that opening? I thought it was kind of, wow.
1: You know, ChatGPT is really impressive. And uh, everybody listening, I hope you have tried ChatGPT because it is really fun and my favorite part of chat gpt being in the world is watching the really creative prompts that people come up with the things that chat gpt produces like are really good for kind of mundane uses right they're really good for like summarize this thing i know a kid who goes to catholic school and uses it for his religion homework so like there'll be a passage in the Bible that he has to write about and he doesn't understand it. So he's like puts it in the chat GPT and says, summarize this. And then it helps him with his homework. Oh, that's a cool use. Cool use. Or like I know some other kids who use it to make up characters. And then they say, write a battle to the death between these two characters.
0: That also seems really fun. What do you think it missed? It reminded me of like someone doing an impression of me like versus like how I actually talk?
1: So the the kind of core voice of chat GPT, a professor was recently quoted as saying, it sounds like a 35-year-old compliance lawyer. So if a 35-year-old compliance lawyer tried to imitate uh, JVN style, I think that's That's what we would get. I mean, we had some cliches in there, right? We had mind blown.
0: I lulled at the podcast where we come to learn, grow, and get inspired. That was, that made me, even though I I guess that is what we're doing. But I was like, I hope that people didn't like click the podcast off, like at the beginning, being like, did Jonathan, like, what happened? Like, when did they start like talking like this? I thought it was like genius. I also (laughs) thought this was really interesting that we edited out, but. Our ChatGPT messed up the subtitle of your book. Rather than saying confronting race, gender, and ability bias in tech, ChatGPT gave your book the title, How to Fix the Hidden Failures of AI.
1: So that's not bad in terms of a guess about what the book is about. So I think to to look at what went wrong there, we have to look at how ChatGPT works, right? So the way that it works is they took... Something like 176 billion parameters.
0: I'm sorry. I'm freaking out. That's like the biggest number I've ever heard. So they took 176 billion parameters. Like, does that mean that someone was like putting in like a binary code to like program chat GPT and there was like 176 billion things they had to like, like, what does that mean?
1: All right. So what it means is that there's a training data set. And this training data set is 570 gigabytes of stuff. It's books, it's articles, it's chat logs, it's crap sourced from the web, broadly. It's the entire corpus of Reddit, whatever you can scrape from the open web. And so they take this and put it into the computer, right? And say, computer, show me what the patterns are in this gigantic text corpus. And the computer says, oh yeah, sure. Okay. Because the computer is really good at recognizing patterns, mathematical patterns. And so then once the data is fed in, once the computer recognizes the patterns, it has what's called a model. And the model can output text. And the way it works is you prompt it, and then it makes predictions about what the next word should be in the sentence. And you do that enough times, you have coherent
0: sentences. So when they put all that stuff into like what would become chat GPT or whatever, like when they put that into the computer, is it like pressing equal on a graphing calculator and it immediately tells you? Or did that take like six months of them inputting it? Like how long did that take? Or do we even know?
1: Well, that's a really good question. One of the big differences about ChatGPT and its underlying technology GPT-3 is that it's a much bigger training data set than anybody has ever made before. So GPT-2, which was the technology that came earlier, you know, as the name suggests, had 1.5 billion parameters and this one has 176 billion parameters, right? So the capacity for analyzing data is growing exponentially. And so we can do more. And there's this thing called the unreasonable effectiveness of data, which means that the more data you put in, the more precise the predictions are that you get out. So one of the reasons that ChatGPT works so well is because it has this Unbelievable amount of data. Now, we could talk about the environmental cost of training these AI models because it's not like you and I can collect 500 gigabytes of information and feed it into the computer and just like get a model out in 10 seconds. Like, it's not. It's not like that. It's not like putting something into a graphing calculator. It's really expensive. It's time-consuming. You have to do it in the cloud. You get charged for computing cycles. That's really expensive. From
0: who? Who charges you?
1: I mean, we have this perception, right, that the cloud is kind of ubiquitous, that there are all these tech startups out there. Not true at all. The cloud, first of all, is somebody else's computer and that other person's computer is owned by Microsoft, Google, or Amazon. Like Those are your options for cloud computing. And so OpenAI, which is the company that has developed ChatGPT, has a partnership with Microsoft. So I'm guessing that they are doing their model training in the Microsoft cloud. And it's really, really expensive. It's pretty cheap to use the model once it's trained, but it takes an awful lot of computing power in order to train a model on really big data in the first place.
0: You know how sometimes like you'll hear like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, like getting really pissed with like the Moderna of the world because it was like taxpayer funded to those companies, like through tax breaks and also literally taxpayer funded to develop these vaccines. And then for them to turn around and like raise the price by like a gajillion percent or whatever, it's like, those were taxpayer funded. So like, wouldn't like Microsoft and Google and Amazon get like massive corporate tax breaks? And like, it's like the people that can't access those technologies and can't access those services or the very people that those sort of AI predictive things like may leave out or not include, like they're giving some sort of equity to it and then not getting to use the benefits.
1: hmm No, you're right. And I've, I feel like there are two questions there. It's the question of who is left out in developing these kinds of new AI technologies, and also who gets to access these things. Actually, no, there's three questions there, because it's about who gets to access, and then it's also about who paid for
0: this. Yes, who paid for it, and who's profiting?
1: Oh, who paid and who profits? These are the big questions, always. So interestingly, mostly it's paid for by the government. Like there's a huge amount of NSF funding in tech development. Who profits? There's some interesting stuff going on there. I just had a long conversation with a journalist the other day about like, how do people make money with AI? And I could talk about this for hours. Right now, OpenAI doesn't seem to have a, a clear business model for ChatGPT. I think they're trying to monetize it through the partnership with Microsoft. They're embedding it in the Bing search engine. So you've probably read those stories about Sydney, the Bing chatbot that freaked mm. out reporter Kevin Roos in the New York Times. So they're trying to, trying to figure out how to make money out of it. There's also the option of selling the company. The company has been valued at bajillions of dollars so they could just sell it and do an exit that way. So the question of who paid and who profits is usually like it was paid for with government money and venture capital money. Who profits? It's the people who own the company. Who is left out? It's the people who are always left out. So one of the things that I write about in the book, I write about people with disabilities and how tech is really, really wonderful at making the world more accessible for people with disabilities until it isn't, right? So we have things like text-to-speech and we have things like Google Maps that can help you navigate, but Google Maps navigation doesn't work, for example, if you are underground in the New York City subway right so if you're blind and you're relying on google maps to give you voice directions then it's going to work above ground it's not going to work so well underground right so like we can't expect tech to be the magic bullet and we should also embrace the fact that tech allows somebody who's blind to navigate the city better and more independently
0: it also makes me think like wouldn't there be a fair amount of ai generated text already on the internet so of those 176 billion parameters like how do we know that they're not using like ai or like non-human generated speech anyway to base those parameters like off of
1: oh my god so you're saying there's ai written stuff out there and then the ai is getting trained on the ai written stuff
0: yes like wouldn't that be supplementing it
1: I. Uh- There is a lot of AI written stuff out there. So the previous generation of AI written text was generally created using something uh, called natural language generation. And the most popular natural language generation programs were basically like Mad Libs, right? So news organizations use these a lot. The AP uses it for automatically writing earnings reports based on stock earnings. So like when McCormick Spices announces their quarterly results, like you could have a human being write the same story every single time, or you can have the computer write the story automatically and the human just checks it and says, Oh yeah, fine. Cause you know, all those stories are basically the same. Bloomberg uses automated writing a lot for, uh, you know, doing short paragraphs uh, summarizing movements in the financial markets. And so it's like Mad Libs because you write the skeleton of the story, like a human writes the skeleton of the story, and then you just plug in the numbers as they come. And if the earnings for McCormick spices are up, then you use the phrase, McCormick's earnings were up. And then if McCormick's earnings were down, like you use if-then logic to write the sentence, McCormick's earnings were down this month. It's right. cool, but it's not it's not like Skynet, it's not like the the kind of dramatic AI that you might imagine from like watching Star Trek or Star Wars or Terminator or whatever.
0: If you follow me on socials or listen to Getting Curious and Pretty Curious, then you'll know I've been on a real makeup journey over the last few years. I've especially been enjoying a more colorful eyeshadow moment, and I've been loving incorporating Thrive Cosmetics full line of makeup into my routine. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. One thing that's really major about Thrive is how much they're prioritizing giving back. It feels good to know that when I support Thrive, Thrive turns around and supports the communities around them too. I also love that their high-performance formulas are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free and have zero parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at ThriveCosmetics.com Curious. That's ThriveCosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com Curious for 10% off your first order. Did you know that while over 60% of Americans dream of starting their own business, less than 20% of them ever take their first step? The reason? Building a business is tough. Having built a business or two myself, I know just how difficult the whole process is. But Taylor Brands is simplifying the business journey. From launching and managing to growing your business, Taylor Brands isn't just another tool. It's your online business partner from launch to success. With Taylor Brands, building your dream business becomes an effortless experience. Yes! From LLC information to bookkeeping invoicing to acquiring licenses and permits, and even setting up your bank account, Taylor Brands handles it all seamlessly. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC information plans using our link, taylorbrands.com slash jvn. That's tailorbrand dot slash jvn. So start your business journey today with Taylor Brands. In our previous episode, we learned about techno-chauvinism. It's like, well, I did. You are the teacher of it. But like, I was thinking about that kind of even with this, like where if you were going towards the easier thing or like doing something because it was convenient, you know, making AI like text-to-speech because it was easier or whatever, but then that ends up being fed into like a larger like AI text-to-speech saying like, does that ever end up getting that voice off or can like that previous... Thing that was meant to be easier, like end up making something harder, which was like an example of like techno chauvinism within techno chauvinism, where like you're trying to do a wider, better thing, but because of previous work, it like can actually get in the way or like make it further off of what your intended result was.
1: Hmm. Hmm. That's a really good question. And so techno chauvinism, I always define as like a kind of bias that says that technological solutions are superior, and the thing that I think about when I think about techno chauvinism and the training data, just like, you know, getting random crap off the internet and using it to train something like chat GPT is I think about all of the toxicity that's on mm. the open web. Like I think about all the toxicity, all the hate, it's going to reproduce, you know, our, our boring language, but it's also going to reproduce our hateful language, our exploitative language language. Now, OpenAI has done a better job than some other tech companies because they do have a sensor. Like they do have a model that looks at the output of ChatGPT and like it won't say certain words. It uses a data set called the Real Toxicity Prompts. Mm. Right? So there are people out there who research toxicity online and they have compiled a data set of like, these are the things that are considered toxic. And so ChatGPT will look at the output, will measure it against the real toxicity prompts data set. And if the output is considered too toxic, then it will censor itself. Right? It will not output the thing or it will delete it.
0: Did you see that thing, this AI, like, cartoon that was, like, mimicking Seinfeld or something? And it was on, like, 24-7, but then all of a sudden it started making, like, anti-Semitic jokes. And isn't that an example of an AI thing taking parameters and, like, it would have invented the toxicity of, like, whatever it was reading or whatever they were feeding into it? And then it started making, like, anti-Semitic jokes. Mm-hmm. Or was it transphobic jokes? It was some sort of offensive bad joke.
1: Yeah, yeah, some sort of horrific thing. I think that the idea of the endless Seinfeld yes. generated by AI is kind of delightful, right? And I think it's enormously creative to have created that and then to have thought, oh, yeah, let's animate it. Cause, you know, obviously Jerry Seinfeld is not going to like, you know, act in a 24 7 Seinfeld production. However, All of the bad things about humanity are reflected in the training data that was used to feed the AI that generates the thing. And so the longer the AI runs, the more likely it is that it's going to break down and start spewing hate. Right, so we see this in things like Microsoft. A few years ago, had a bot called Tay that they released on Twitter, and the idea was that people would interact with Tay, and it would learn from the interactions, and it would, you know, interact with people on Twitter in a human like way. It was I don't know ten minutes or so before it starts spouting like pro Hitler rhetoric. Like oh people- fuck. I, uh, oh you know, fed in all of this hateful stuff. And then so the bot started spitting it back. All right. So Microsoft deactivated it. What they've found with Sydney, which is the kind of internal name given to the chat GPT bot embedded in Microsoft Bing is that they found that the longer Sydney runs, the weirder the responses get. So, the story I mentioned before, Kevin Roos, New York Times reporter, interacted with Sydney and it ended up asking him to leave his wife and like have a passionate affair with it, Sydney.
0: Which is flattering, but it is a lot. Like, thank you, but like, who told you to talk to me like this, you weird computer? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's very charming. I saw a really hilarious story afterward that was like, oh, newsflash: New York Times reporter leaves wife for computer bot, <laughs> uh, which obviously no, it did not happen. One of the things that's weird about this is that the longer it runs, the weirder the responses get, right? And that was something that nobody expected.
0: Have they fixed it, or is like Sydney still saying weird stuff the longer you use Chat GPT or whatever?
1: No, it definitely still says weird stuff. Like after it runs for a while, what they have done, uh, most recently is they've just limited it. So you can Mm -hmm. only have like a time limited interaction with it, or you can only ask it five questions because that cuts down on
0: the weirdness. Okay. So like. You know, for this first part, we've been talking about like trending technology, like the new, new, but these algorithms and their algorithmic biases have a long history. So how has the past laid the groundwork for today's tech landscape? Kind of what we talked about in the last time about like how these biases are baked into the literal groundwork of like how tech expresses itself now
1: for a long time there was this perception that tech was was new that it reflected a better world that it was something superior to what we have already and now it's become really clear that well our Current AI technologies are merely trained on data about the past. And so what they're doing is they're reproducing all of the bad stuff about the past. They're reproducing financial discrimination, right? So we have things like mortgage approval algorithms, which are trying to automatically determine if you are eligible for a mortgage to buy a house, Well, guess what? In the United States, we have a really long history of financial discrimination against people of color. And so the markup did an investigation and they found that mortgage approval algorithms were 40 to 80% more likely to deny loan applicants of color than they were to deny their white counterparts.
0: That is fucking crazy.
1: Isn't that terrible?
0: So that means that like, especially on the higher end of that, like 80%, Like that means that like four out of five black people were getting denied mortgage approval, like one in five, like that is not good chances. We're told from such a young age that like homeownership is like the American dream. And it's like, it is the thing that you need to do. So then when you find something and you love it, and then to go all the way to the part in the process where you go to get a mortgage and then have it get denied, like that is like a big deal. And I actually have like chills on my like all sorts, like I just, my legs, my arms, like, cause like that is just so heartbreaking. And to think about how hard you work and it's even harder for black people to do because of the like country's financial atrocities that have been committed against black people. But, and then to have all of that like history of redlining baked into our algorithms like that no one thought like, oh wait, like there is a lot of shit in how we've approved like loans previously to this. So let's make sure we're not baking fucking the information of redlining into our goddamn algorithms. I didn't even know about the mortgage ones.
1: Oh, it's horrifying. And homeownership is a major way of building generational wealth.
0: Fuck yes, it is.
1: And that has been you know, denied to black and brown people historically in the United States. And so these algorithms are just perpetuating that. It's a big problem. And so I think that the people who build these algorithms need to think harder uh, about what the algorithms are doing, need to audit the algorithms to check if this Mm. is happening, which it inevitably is. The people who are promoting these algorithms saying, oh yeah, this is going to be better. We're going to save you so much money and it's going to be so efficient. Those people need to kind of, Take a step back and slow it down and say, okay, are your algorithms actually doing the things that you claim? And just overall, we need to be so much more critical of algorithms. We need to not rush into using AI. And we also need to audit the AI systems that are out there. Now, okay, I realize that sounds kind of boring, like talking about auditing and compliance, like most people's eyes glaze over.
0: I wrote audit and circled it four times. So is there no auditing process now?
1: I'm so glad you asked. We do have the ability to audit systems. There are some amazing people out there who are doing work about the question of how do we audit algorithmic systems. Uh, we have Julia Anglin's work at ProPublica and at the markup. We have methods developed by the markup for auditing algorithms, which is basically you look at the inputs, you look at the outputs, and you measure whether uh, it is more likely statistically that, say, a person of color would be denied versus you know, versus a white person. We've also got people like Kathy O'Neill. I've worked with Kathy O'Neill and her company Orca on doing algorithmic auditing. Deb Raji, who worked a little bit with Dr. Joy Bolomini in the Gender Shades Project done by the Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, Deb Raji is doing some amazing work around algorithmic auditing. So these these methods are out there. They're not hugely well-known yet, but they do exist. And so government-wise, there was something that was just published called the Blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights. This was Mm. something that came out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy under Alondra Nelson. And the Blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights says, listen, algorithms are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf and US citizens have rights relative to algorithmic systems. So one of the things that this uh, blueprint proposes is that if there is an algorithmic system that has made a decision against you, you would have the right to a complete explanation of what happened, and you would have the right to contest the decision, and you would have to have a reasonable chance of succeeding. I love that. Isn't that great?
0: I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon. But I should stop paying for me time with whatever credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offer 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Sign me up. Room upgrades? Yes, please. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Nerdwallet This sticky, sneaky ass motherfucker, Francis Galton. This ghost from 1790s Christmas racist past won't leave us alone, honey. What does he have to do with this shit? Why, why is his crusty 1790 fucking ass, why is he still up in these algorithms?
1: Well, so let's back up. So Francis Galton, not only related to Charles Darwin, but also one of the founders of the field of statistics. So Galton gives us the concept of correlation.
0: No, no, Meredith. No, I can't. I didn't know I knew eugenics. I didn't know he invented goddamn statistics.
1: Yeah. Early statisticians, like they're all up in the eugenics. It's terrible.
0: Fuck. I'm freaking out. No, no it's fine. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm sorry. This is me processing something. I literally thought I knew what you're going to say, but I didn't. I was like, yeah, eugenics, we know, but I didn't. Wow. Statistics. I actually have the chills in my groin and on my triceps. Am I sick? I'm going to stop talking now. We don't interrupt (laughs) NYU professors when they're about to teach us stuff. Please continue (laughs) with his statistician fucking crusty racist ass. Okay. We're ready.
1: Yeah, his crusty racist ass did do some very important work in developing the field of statistics. It, you know, developed a fundamental concept that we still use today. Like all of our AI and data science is based on, you know, using the statistical concept of correlation. But there's all kinds of problematic stuff embedded in the history of statistics. And so as data scientists, as AI researchers, like we need to do a better job of grappling with this, with reckoning with it, and with not doing things like trying to determine somebody's race from their x-ray data.
0: Do they do that now?
1: Well, I... I did hear at one point of somebody trying to do that. And like, I, I'm just like, oh, that's a terrible idea. Or that thing where they fed in photos of people and they were like, oh, we're going to use AI to determine if this person is gay based on their photo. Like, that's garbage science. Like, that's not science. That's just garbage.
0: This is where my brain went on that piece of information. Statistics. Like, what are the statistical odds of X, like statistics, right? Which also is to say, what's the probability of something? And so in like a mortgage algorithm thing, what's the probability or what are the statistics that this is going to default if the person can afford it, whatever, like whatever those input numbers were, it's like the whole BMI thing. Like if the people were only using a certain strict subset of data to predict what you should be within and they didn't use like a wider pool of people or like a larger pool of people, then of course it's going to have like a more limited expectation of what an outcome would be or what health is if it's only using like a very restricted thing in the first place. And because this man literally invented eugenics, you guys, like this is, it's giving smoking gun. We have this idea that science is this infallible thing operating on an island of truth that our opinions are not able to touch. And if you look at like eugenics and like using those crazy, like World War II things of that Heimlich guy or whatever the fuck his name was about, you know, studying skulls and sizes and this and that, that is junk science, 100% racist, all the way motherfucking racist. So anyway, I'm so sorry. I just almost sweat out my blow dry. I'm freaking out. So I'm going to ask my question now, unless do you have anything to say based off of what I just freaked out about?
1: Well, I think you're right. And one of the really difficult things here is that we need to separate the art from the artist, right? Like we use the concept of correlation, but we need to totally reject Francis Galton's eugenicist ideas. And I think we can also even look at the name of the fields that we've invented, computer science, data science right like appending science on the end does make it seem like it's this you know this island of truth this haven of objectivity but really all of the messiness of being human is tied up in the data that feeds our algorithmic systems and so ultimately computers are really good at solving mathematical problems and they're really bad at solving social problems
0: You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Ben-Ness. How amazing was that freaking episode, you guys? Our guest this week was Meredith Broussard. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation out tomorrow. In the meantime... You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to Quinn for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, honey, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. It's really not that hard to find the app once you find it. You know what I'm saying? Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. We're going to be trying out some new stuff on our Instagram, so look out for that. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me and Erica Ghetto.